Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. If you all would be turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. And while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's ministry, which will be in the uh, room in the back corner back there. If you want to make your way uh, to that room, our leaders will be there waiting for you. Again, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, as we continue our journey uh, through the book of Hebrews. So allow me to read our passage for us this morning, and then we'll take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the grace and the mercy that you have poured out on us in our lives, but even on this day, uh, Father, today, you've been patient with us, your mercies have been new to us, and it is a good gift of your grace that you've allowed us to gather here together this morning as Christ Fellowship. Father, we are so thankful for what you have accomplished in bringing uh, Leesville Baptist Church and Refuge Church together to form this new work and this new body. And so, Father, as we look to your word this morning, I pray that you would do what only you are capable of doing, which is that you would keep us, that you would preserve us, that you would keep our eyes fixed on Christ, that you would sustain our faith, that you would fix our eyes on things above. Father, that's what we long to happen every week as we look to the truth of your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit that you graciously ascend to dwell within us, that you would work through the power of your spirit by the truth of your word to day by day change us and conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. So Father, we pray that you would do that exact thing this morning. And Father, as I pray so often, I pray again right now that you would protect us, Father, protect all of us from being led astray, that you would use your word to help us to stand firm and steadfast. Father, I pray that my words would lead no one astray, that I would speak only what is true of you and only what is true of your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would be here with us now at work in us for your glory and for our good. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been a Christian for uh, any length of time or maybe not a long time at all, you have probably found out that walking with Christ is not always easy. In fact, it's often not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. And 
One of the things I love about the Bible is that it's really honest about that, right? The Bible, the New Testament in particular, does not sugarcoat what life is like when we seek to follow Christ. I mean, think about it for just a second, right? All of Paul's letters, almost all of them, which makes up a vast majority of our New Testament, almost all of Paul's letters were written because there was some issue or problem happening in a church, right? Something needed to be dealt with. Something needed to be corrected, whether it was false teaching or uh, acceptance of unrepentant sin in the church or misunderstandings about circumcision or misunderstandings about the coming of Christ and on and on the issues go. And we know that this is a constant concern for Paul because as we mentioned, I believe last week in First Corinthians, or sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is listing all the things that he's had to endure in his life, beatings and shipwrecks and stonings and lashings, and the list goes on and on. At the end of that list in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul says this, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is Paul acknowledging that when we come to Christ, when we gather as, as his people, that there's not some magic thing that happens in our lives all of a sudden become problem-free or worry-free. Right? There are constant temptations. There are constant concerns. There are constant difficulties, constant trials and tribulations and hardships. And that's the reality for the people to whom this book was also written the author of Hebrews wrote this book because he was concerned about those to whom he was writing. He was concerned that they would turn their backs on Christ and walk away because they were enduring extremely difficult circumstances. In fact, we'll find later in Hebrews chapter 10 that some of them had been imprisoned for their faith. They've been thrown in jail and then others have come along to help them. And because they had just come along to help them, to to minister to them while they were in prison, then the government or the people in charge of that area came and took all of their possessions, right? They plundered their possessions, all simply because they were followers of Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is pleading with this people not to throw that away. Don't throw away your confidence because you're enduring hardship. And that's what he says later in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So you can hear even there in those verses what the author of Hebrews is calling us to, what God is calling us to. He's calling us to endure. Listen, enduring means going through hardship Enduring means it's not going to be easy. And the call on us is to do that very thing, to endure. Or even earlier, as we saw in, earlier in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews called on us not to neglect so great a salvation. Continuously and relentlessly blow against us. 
And not only that, but God's word also makes clear that Satan and his demons are prowling about the earth. They are seeking those to devour. God has given them permission to do so, and they, they go about trying to lead God's people astray. And so we face constant hardship, constant temptations. And let's be honest, right? The culture we live in right now is not getting more generous and less hostile toward Christianity, right? It's getting less generous and more hostile toward Christianity. I mean, we're at a place where holding what used to be just everyday run-of-the-mill orthodox faithful Christian positions on things as basic as marriage, sexuality, gender, and the value of life can cause you to be labeled a bigot, intolerant, unloving, and even fearful. Now, I want to complain about it, but just to face the reality. Because I want all of you, including me, to be prepared. Right? We need to be ready. We need to be ready for the hardship that we're going to have to endure if we remain faithful. And I want to encourage you because our hardship has not gotten anywhere near to the place that the hardship of the Hebrews had gotten, right? They were being thrown in prison. They were having their property stolen from them, taken away from them because of their faith in Christ. And so I'm saying these words, again, not to complain this morning, but to prepare us. To prepare us that we might stand firm because that is the concern of the author of Hebrews. It is God's concern through the words in this book. And so it should also be our concern this morning. It is striking to me, friends, that in the climate in which the author of Hebrews wrote this letter, right, it was the government was terrible, right, throwing people in prison for their faith, plundering the property of people who would help those who had been thrown in prison because of, they did it out of obedience to Jesus. And the response of the author of Hebrews was not to complain about the culture. The response of the author of Hebrews was, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now look, we can have a different conversation on another day on what our interaction with culture should be like. I'm not saying we shouldn't interact with culture. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to positively impact culture. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying that's not our ultimate concern. Our ultimate concern, if we're going to remain faithful in the midst of difficult days, is that we need to see Jesus. And this entire book is a long, drawn-out meditation on the glories of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is what will sustain us. The only thing that will sustain us in the midst of hardship, affliction, suffering, temptation, and mockery is to keep hearing the truth of God's word, to keep hearing the truth about God himself, and to keep meditating on the glories of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing for us this morning. Now you recall as we, as we dove into Hebrews a number of weeks ago, we, we saw that there in chapter 1, the, the objective is to lay out the glories, the supremacy of the Son of God, namely Jesus Christ, how he is much more superior to the angels. 
And the author of Hebrews launches into this glorious uh, recounting of the glories of Jesus Christ. It would do us well just to remind ourselves of what he says in verses 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the rest of the chapter just fills us with the sense of the glories of Jesus Christ, that he is incomparable, that there's no one in his category, not even these majestic, glorious angels that people were tempted to worship when they saw them. They are nothing more than created beings by Jesus himself that Jesus holds together by the word of his power. Jesus is the glorious one, and he has spoken, and we would do well to listen to him. And therefore, chapter 2, verse 1 said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it because this glorious news has come from a glorious person who is superior to all other beings and entities, namely Jesus Christ. And yet, something strange happens in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now that should seem really odd to us, that this glorious Jesus Christ, who the author of Hebrews spent an entire chapter and more declaring his superiority over all other, create, all other beings, created and he, is, he created all things, he upholds all things, he is the uncreated one, and yet he died, suffered and laid down his life that he might taste death for us. Listen, that doesn't make any sense. It's why 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the cross is, full, is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make any sense why God would do this. Why Jesus, the glorious uncreated one who created all things, through whom all things were created, who's going to inherit all things, why he would lay down his life. And the author of Hebrews wants to say to us, he wants to help us remain firm by showing us that the death of Christ and the superiority of Christ are not in conflict. In fact, what he is going to say to us is that the death of Christ demonstrates the glory of Christ. And as we believe that and as we rest in that, we can remain firm in the wisdom of God that this all happened according to his divine foreknowledge and plan. Therefore, while the world may want to mock the cross, 
They want to call it things like divine child abuse. We need only remember that it was through the cross that the glory and superiority of Christ was put on full display. And so that is what the author of Hebrews is seeking to demonstrate in these verses. That the cross does not obscure the glory of Christ. It reveals the glory of Christ. It manifests the glory of Christ to us. Therefore, it's not something that we should whisper about in quiet corners. It's not something we should be ashamed of. It's not something we should be embarrassed about. Instead, it should be front and center of our lives and front and center of who we are as a church. And meditating on the reality of the cross of Christ and his suffering in our place is what will sustain us in the midst of hardship and suffering. So the author of Hebrews here gives us three truths to help us see the in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And here they are. Number one, God's glory is the goal of the universe. God's glory is the goal of the universe. Number two, the path to glory comes through suffering. And number three, we are united to Christ. So let's look at this first truth. God's glory is the goal of the universe. Look there with me in verse 10. The author of Hebrews says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So I want to take a moment and just focus in on the first half of verse 10. That first half that says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. So why does the author of Hebrews feel the need to put that here? Why do we need to know that this is the one? For it was fitting that he, it's by the way here talking about God the Father, for it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. So, so why those descriptive words about God in this place? Because here in verse 9, just before verse 10, and, and we have to remember that these verses are connected because of that word for, F-O-R, at the beginning of verse 9, lets us know that he's building on what was said before. And in verse 9, he told us that Jesus has been made a little while lower than the angels, but he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for, because it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom, all things exist. So what is the connection between the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and the author of Hebrews need to remind us that, that all things were created by God the Father and for God the Father. Why, why that description? Why that argument? Well, I think he is anticipating exactly what I mentioned a few moments ago, that the death of Jesus doesn't make any sense to human logic. Right? He's more superior to the angels. He is this glorious reality. He is the uncreated one. He has no beginning. He has always existed. He is all-powerful. He holds all things together. And yet he laid down his life on the cross and he tasted death for everyone. But then the author in verse 10 says, because it was fitting. It was the right thing. It was the needed thing. It was the necessary thing for him to do. For God to do this, the God for whom and by whom 
all things exist. You see, that's the key phrase here in this passage that lets us know that the cross was according to the sovereign plan of God the Father. When the author of Hebrews says to us that, that, that all things exist for God, that all things were created by God, he is saying to us that God, this universe belongs to God and that the end goal of this universe is the glory of God, that it was created ultimately for him, that all things exist for God the Father, all things exist to bring glory to God the Father. And therefore that reminds us, that lets us know that the death of Christ was not some rogue event that was out of the control of the sovereign hand of God. No, it was all part of his divine sovereign plan to bring glory to himself because that's why all things exist. They exist to bring glory to him. It's exactly what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 when he writes, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was all part of God's divine sovereign plan. So I just want you to see that the logic of this section of verse 10 of why the author of Hebrews tells us that all things were created for God and by God, that the logic goes like this. Every single thing in this universe was created out of nothing by the spoken word of God. He made it all, and it all ultimately belongs to him. It is his, and he ultimately made it all for himself, to bring glory to himself. That is the end goal of the universe, is to bring glory to God. And we can rest assured, according to this, that God will always be at work to bring the universe to its intended end, namely the glory of his name. Therefore, the author of Hebrews is telling us that we can know with absolute confidence that the death of Jesus Christ was intended to bring glory to God, to fulfill the purpose for which God created the universe. In other words, as I said earlier, the death of Christ is not an embarrassing event in the history of Christianity that we somehow want to keep quiet. No, it is at the very center of the unfolding purpose of God for whom and by whom all things exist. The death of Christ, the suffering of Christ will be the theme of our songs in eternity. Right? Revelation Chapter 5, we just looked at this recently. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 say this. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the song of the heavens, right? This is the song of the new heavens and the new earth. We will surround the throne and we will be rejoicing in the death of Jesus Christ, in the glory that it is displayed for all the world to see of his mercy and his grace to us. In other words, this is meant to sustain our faith because it reminds us 
that the songs of this world will not be the songs of eternity, but that the song of the death of Jesus Christ will be the song we sing forever as we rejoice in the glories of the slain Lamb of God. And listen, just as a side note, I want to take a moment to say that this world, that the psychology, the, the, uh, the, the kind of philosophy of this world that, that calls man to find their happiness by seeking out your purpose, right? You, you hear this all the time. You've got to find your purpose in life if you're going to be happy. I don't disagree with the statement. I just disagree that you need to go find it. Because here it is. This universe and everything in it was created for the glory of God. That is your purpose. Now, you may need time figuring out, praying about, talking to brothers and sisters of Christ about what that looks like in your life, how you're going to carry that out, in what context and in what way. But you don't have to go looking for your ultimate purpose. The Bible makes it clear. Your ultimate purpose is to live for the glory of God, to, to live for the purpose for which you were created. And living for any other purpose will bring you nothing but depression and despair and anxiety and dissatisfaction. Right? So if we're going to live for the glory of God, if we're going to live for the reason that we were actually created, then we have to put the cross at the very center of our lives. That's what the author of Hebrews is reminding us of as we remember that all things exist for the glory of God, that that's the purpose of the universe. But the second truth I want us to meditate on this morning is that the path to glory comes through suffering. Look with me again at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, that first little phrase there, bringing many sons to glory, is an astounding phrase, right? That God wants to bring us to glory, that that's his objective for our lives, for all who are trusting in Christ, what God is doing in our lives, even right now, this very moment, as we are gathered, he is at work in us, bringing us to glory, right? It is a gift of his grace that none of us deserve, but that's what he is doing for us. He is bringing us to glory. And it says the way in which that was carried out is by making the founder of their salvation, of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now there's a lot to unpack in that short phrase. And the, the first thing I want us to see is that the English Standard Version says that, that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Now that word founder, depending on your translation, is translated a number of different ways because it's a, it's a fascinating word in the original language and it kind of carries a weight of a lot of different meanings. It's hard to kind of capture completely in English. So sometimes the Bible translates it as author. Some translations translate it as chief or captain, leader. It even carries the sense of the word pioneer. Some translations render it pioneer. He's the founder, the leader, the captain, the pioneer of our salvation. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to capture 
is the sense that Jesus has both established something and is leading us toward something. Right? The founder and the pioneer, the founder and the captain, the leader. One way I think about this, I just, a, a few years ago, not too long ago, learned something that just blew my mind away, which is, which is this. You all may already know it, so you may be thinking, that's not a big deal. I already knew about that. All right, but out west, you can still see the, the wagon wheel trail marks in many places of the Oregon Trail. It's still there. Ruts in the ground in many different places on the Oregon Trail. And as I think about that, right, the, the first people to make a decision to head out west had no clue how they were going to get there. Right? They would go one direction. They probably got cut off, reached an impasse. They had to double back and try a different direction. Then they uh, probably ran into a mountain. They couldn't go over. They had to find a way around it. Or they reached a river. They couldn't cross in that spot. And they had to travel a different way and find a different spot. Right? All these different paths are trying to figure out where they're going to go. But eventually, eventually, those first people who went ahead, those pioneers, found the most effective way to get where they were going. And over time, every wagon to come after them took the exact same path. Day after day, week after week, thousands upon thousands of wagon wheels going over the same spot on the ground until it was a worn out, clear path of how you were going to get from the east to the west. And you see, it was those pioneers who founded the way, who led the way, but also established the path. They were the pioneers who went before to show the way to get to the West. And much of what this word captures, this founder, pioneer, leader, captain, is, is captured in that sense that, that Jesus has led the way before us. He has shown the way. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He has laid it out in front of us. But here's the really good news. We don't have to go searching and exploring and trying to figure it out because it's already there, which is why Jesus said to us in John 14, 6, right, one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, Jesus said, I am the way and the, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way. He is the path. He is the pioneer, the founder. He is the way. We need only to go to the Father through him. It's why the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn of the dead. He is first and preeminent. He goes before us. He's the firstborn of the dead, meaning that we will, sorry, not firstborn of the resurrection. We will one day join him in his resurrection. He was the first to go before us. He went before us and secured our salvation. But what I love Listen, almost every illustration that any pastor ever gives falls short of the glory of Jesus Christ. And what I love is that he just didn't chart the way before us. But what else does this passage say? He's also bringing us with him. Right? God is bringing us. He's not sitting back waiting for us, hoping that we're going to make it. No, what does it say? He's bringing us to glory. The path is there. He's shown it to us. Jesus died for us. And he brings us along with him to glory. And this Savior, it says, this founder of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Well, what does that mean? Right? 
how is the eternal, perfect, divine Son of God, Jesus Christ, how can he be made perfect? Does that imply that he was somehow lacking something? That he was lacking perfection and had to be made perfect? That he wasn't perfect before he came to earth and suffered? Well, that's not at all what the author of Hebrews means. And so I just want to make that really clear this morning. That Jesus Christ, for all eternity, before creation ever happened, for all eternity past, was the perfect, flawless, spotless Son of God. He was glorious. Nothing could be added to the perfections of his nature and character. So then what does the author of Hebrews mean when he says that he was made perfect through suffering? Well, the word for perfect here is not, it's not really, it's not the opposite of imperfect, right? It's not what it means. The word perfect here means to finish something, to complete something, right? Jesus was given a task by God the Father and when he brought that task to the mission, and when he completed that mission, he was made perfect. He had to carry out the mission that was given him by the Father. And what was the mission given to him by the Father? Well, Jesus makes clear in John 17 what that mission was. And by the way, I love John chapter 17. If you've never taken time to read that chapter of the Bible, I would encourage you to do that this afternoon and the days to come. It is a, it is a glorious chapter of scripture because you have this prayer from Jesus the divine son of God to the father it's this almost like deep personal conversation from Jesus to the father where we're given insight into the mission that Jesus was given and how he has cared for his people and this is what Jesus says in John chapter 17 verses 1 through 4 when Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Do you hear that in verse 2? His mission is to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. That's the mission of Jesus, to safely deliver all that the Father has given him to the Father for all eternity. And so that's what Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 means when it says that he made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was through suffering, it was through the cross that Jesus was able to accomplish the mission that the Father gave him. It is only through the cross that Jesus was able to safely deliver those whom the Father gave him. This is how Jesus accomplished our salvation, how he safely delivered his people to the Father for all eternity by dying on the cross in their place, by taking the wrath they deserved, that apart from the cross they would be condemned to hell for all eternity. But Jesus on the cross stood in their place through his suffering that he might deliver them. 
And as we've seen before and a few weeks ago, we, we saw that this is the only way that God could both be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. His justice remains because sin is dealt with on the cross. And then he can also become the justifier and declare us righteous through the finished work of Christ in our place. Which is why verse 10 says that this was fitting. It was fitting. It is the only way for us to be delivered safely to the Father for all eternity. And listen, if the path to glory comes through suffering for Jesus, it means it also is the path for us. Our path to glory will also move through suffering. This is exactly what Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You see, we too have been called to suffer and what the author of Hebrews is reminding us of and what he will later remind us of is that we shouldn't be taken off guard by hardship that comes into our life. We should expect it. We should be prepared for it, which is why we every week need to gather together to remind each other to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the, the founder, the pioneer, the captain, the leader of our salvation who has gone before us, who has made perfect to accomplish his mission through suffering. And it has been done and we will join him as he brings us along and we have to endure suffering as well. So we can rest in knowing that God's glory is the goal of the universe. We see that the path to glory must come through suffering. And finally, we are able to remain faithful by knowing that we are united to Christ. So this is the third and final truth I want us to see this morning. We are united to Christ. Look with me there at verses 11 through 13. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So in verse 11, when he says, he who sanctifies, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus sanctifies us. He's at work in us bringing us to glory. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is us. Jesus is working in us. We both, us and Jesus, all have one source, is what verse 11 says to us. Now, what in the world does the author mean by that, saying we have one source? Well, it seems what he's referring to is that in the humanity of Christ, he too was an offspring of Abraham, right? That's what he's going to mention a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 16. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. We all share a humanity. Jesus came and shared in our humanity, and because he willingly came and shared in our humanity and became an offspring of, of Abraham, that's, that's the sense here that we are all from one source. Because of that, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, 
that should blow us away, right? Some of us are born into families uh, that you may not be crazy about. And uh, yeah, you, you have to acknowledge that, well, that's, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my aunt, that's my uncle, right? But now imagine the most dysfunctional family you can think of, right? Just, just they're a mess for whatever reason, right? Think about it. And think about you willingly stepping into their lives and saying, I'm, I'm going to be yours now. You see, Jesus didn't have to do this. And if he was going to do it, maybe he would be a little embarrassed about it. I've got to go and become one of them. Right? They're a messed up people. They rebel against you every step of the way, Father. They're stiff-necked. They have no desire to worship you. They pursue their own desires. They're filled to the brim with sin and rebellion. We gave them everything. We created this world for them. We provide for them. Every day the sun rises, the rain falls. And they don't acknowledge you at all. And you want me to be one of them? Okay, I'll do it, but I'm not happy about it. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> That's not what he says. Right, what does he say? He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. Listen, friends, all who are trusting in Christ this morning, it is tempting for you to come to the end of a long day, a long week, a difficult month, filled with sin and shame. And everything in you wants to run away from Jesus. Because you think he's ashamed of you. That there's no way he would want to be associated with you. But what I want you to hear this morning in verse 11 is that he is not ashamed to stay with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He is not ashamed to be called your brother. And that is good news. That is glorious good news. Therefore, we need not flee away from him. We must turn to him. It's why we have a prayer of confession every Sunday to remind us that we can come to Jesus with our sins, with our failures, with our rebellion. We come to him because he is not ashamed to call us his brother. And then the author of Hebrews proves it by quoting from the Old Testament. So verse, uh, verse 12, he's quoting from Psalm 22. Uh, verse 13, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, and then verse 18. These passages, these two passages, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, were well-accepted messianic passages. In other words, they are quoted throughout the New Testament, fully accepted as referring to Jesus. And so he reaches back into Psalm 22 and he quotes it and it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. 
See, here's Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. It's there in the Bible. He's calling us his brothers. And what's more glorious than that is to think about the fact that he's willing to stand with us. He's there in the midst of us singing praise to the Father with us. Right? Jesus is our worship leader, right? He's right there with us, praising the Father with us, joining in the songs with us. He's in the midst of the congregation. He's not ashamed to stand with us. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. Again, he's positioning himself with us, saying he too looks to the Father and trusts in the Father as he did in his life on earth. And then again, it says, behold, I and the children God has given me. You hear echoes of John 17 in that, right? The children God has given me. What Jesus is saying to us is all the children that God has given him are his brothers and sisters. It is overwhelming to think about the language the Bible uses to describe our unity with Christ. Right? Okay, here the, the analogy is that we are brothers of Christ. And, Later, in other places in the Bible, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ, right? I've said many times to our church that, that if it wasn't in the Bible, I would call it heresy, right? To say that you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ, that is the pinnacle of insanity from human reasoning, right? But we are united with him. We are his brothers and sisters, and therefore we are co-heirs with Christ, the church is called the bride of Christ, right? The church is married to Christ. Christ is called the head of the church. We are called the body of Christ. The church is called the household of God, right? The, the Bible goes on and on and on from every possible thing you can imagine saying to you, you belong to Jesus. You are one with him. Church, you are his bride. Individuals, you are his brothers and sisters. Church, you are his household. His spirit dwells in you. Right? You belong to him. And he is not ashamed to belong to you. And for you to belong to him. And he's not ashamed to be called your brother. And even though he has every reason in the world to be. He has been gracious and kind and patient with us. And because he was not ashamed to be called our brother, next week we're going to see in verses 14 through 18 exactly how that allowed him to step into our place and to die in our place that we might have eternity and eternity full of joy and satisfaction in him. Friends, let the book of Hebrews, let it sit in front of you, meditate over it as it allows you to fix your eyes on things above, to look to Christ and his glories. And it will keep you and it will sustain you if you faithfully do that. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is able to daily point us to Christ, but in particular weekly as we gather with your people, that it points us to the glories of Jesus Christ. And Father, I plead with you, even right now, this very moment, that you would use your word as it has revealed the glories of Christ to us this morning, that you would use it to sustain us and to keep us, that you would use your word to sustain our faith, to build our faith, to build and to increase our affections for Jesus because of the glory of his nature and because of all that he has accomplished for us. 
So Father, I pray that we would rest in the reality that this universe exists for the glory of your name and that we would find our ultimate purpose in that, that we would not seek it in other places and that we would put the cross front and center and know that the path to glory came through suffering, that Jesus was glorified through his suffering and we too, as we join him in his suffering, will find glory of peace and satisfaction in you. Father, I pray that you would make all of this just resonate in our hearts, that it would weigh on us, that it would be absolute truth to us, and that we would rest in the fact that we are united to Christ. We are his brothers and sisters, and we belong to you, and we are your children. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.